Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. All right, what's going on, party people? Everybody doing all right? Hey, I'm so grateful to be here with you. I was told that um, you were blessed to have Brian Paget, one of my good friends, last week. And what I'm hoping is the message that I will preach today is going to dovetail uh, off of what he taught about fearing the Lord last week. And so if you have a Bible with you, you can flip or click over to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5 is where we'll be. And we're going to be in verse 21. Let me read it for our hearing. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his path. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly... He has led astray. This is the word of God. So as said earlier, I have the distinct honor of being a pastor at Frontline Church downtown, and I'm going on four years of being a pastor there. One thing that we do as a community of elders is every year we go on an annual retreat. It's with both the pastors and the wives. We do this because we want to protect the spiritual communion between us all, but then also we just want to be a community that actually knows and is known by one another. So every year we go on a retreat. And when I say retreat, there's something important you need to know about me. The word retreat to me means retreat. Okay? It's sort of like when someone says spring break, to me that means break. That means I am going to get away, all right? That's what it means to me. Break means break. When I retreat, I'm the type of person that retreats from all activity. I'm married. Now, for my wife, When she hears the word retreat, she wants to retreat to the next activity. (laughs) We're very different people. I love you, boo. We're very different people. So this year on our retreat to Colorado Springs, um, I made a vow. I I said, I'm going to do things different, this being our third year in a row to Colorado Springs. Now, when you hear Colorado Springs, a couple things are going to pop up in your mind. Mountains, trails, nature, 
and all sorts of activities. Yay. But like I said, I made a commitment this year because I wanted to honor my wife. See, see, my wife, she has struggled with health concerns, and she has just done incredible work over the last year to take care of herself and get to a place where she was healthy enough to do plenty of activities. And so I made a commitment. I made a commitment that instead of retreating to a plush recliner, found in the confines of a temperature-controlled, secluded room with a mug of roasted joy in one hand and, the cap and captivating literature in another as God intended a retreat to be? No. Instead, I broke for my break to go hiking. I have a picture to prove it. I know you don't believe me. I have a picture to prove it. So, beautiful picture, right? It looks good in that picture. But let me, let me tell you what happened. When we decided to go hiking, I knew things were gonna go downhill, pun intended. Uh, I knew things were going downhill as soon as we got out of the vehicle. See, other couples began grabbing their hiking gear from the vehicle. There's a such thing as hiking gear, people. See, see, I know, I know, I know. When I showed up, uh, I had on regular tennis shoes, regular tennis shoes, a hoodie, and an Apple Watch, which I had to ask Siri if it tracked hiking. Didn't know if there was such a thing. See, some of the guys, they began swapping stories of their recent REI excursion. So I had to ask, what in the world is a REI? Are you supposed to know what that is? And, and they explained it to me. They're like, this is exactly what an REI is. You can buy a windbreaker for $800. And, and I was like, Okay, and that sounds like a good idea to you. Uh, as a matter of fact, when they explained to me what REI is, I said, uh, REI must stand for really ethnically isolating. <laughs> so, <laughs> we get into the hike, and things are going well, until we get three-fourths through this three-mile hike. See, we reached the point where the trail turned into a four-way fork, four different ways you can go. And suddenly, the path became narrow, and it began to gain elevation, and loose gravel paved the way. See, willing participants were required to nearly climb vertically to get to the summit. So me and three other, other individuals said, this is far enough. We're, we're, we're good right here. Y'all go ahead. We're we good right here. And so the, the, the rest of the courageous party continued going up the hill, and we sat there nearly 30 minutes. And while we sat there, uh, people were passing us, and we began passing around a bootleg communion of warm water and beef jerky. As we, <laughs> as we waited... <laughs> Hallelujah. Uh, 
as we waited for our clinically insane party to return from the mountaintop, we just sat there. And between responding to text messages and scrolling Facebook, what else are you supposed to do on a mountain? Uh, I decided to play with my compass. You may ask why. Uh, I decided to play with my compass because something just started going through my mind. There may be bears out here. And... <laughs> And if there's bears out here, you need to know which direction to run. And so I began playing with my compass to figure out which way led home. Um, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. And I started thinking in my mind, uh, if I'm not quick enough, I started looking at the other three people I was there with and I was started plotting, who am I gonna trip to, to get out away from the bear? You guys are nicer than me. So. The north path led towards the, a path that looked like it led to safely, looked look like it led to safety, but it actually fell to a sheer cliff. The south path was less rocky and steep, but actually was a dead end. The east path led safely down the mountain, and the west path was narrow and arduous, but it led to the peak. So while chilling at the fort, we encountered all types of hikers that were bewildered about which path to take. And this throng of individuals coming down from the mountain included two elderly ladies who were coming down from the mountaintop. And when they came down, what went through my mind was some unpastoral words. Here's two elderly ladies coming down, and I got my knee, hands on my knees, and I'm panting and grasping for breath. I started to think which one of them I wanted to trip if I saw a bear. And so as we guided hikers searching for the right path, let me tell you what I never heard come from their mouth. Can you point us to the dead end? We really, really want to use up tons of energy and waste time. We never heard that. Or, hey, do you know where a good cliff is so I can plummet to my tra tragic death? No one asked us that. And we certainly didn't hear, mind your own business. Thanks, but no thanks for your help. See, that way may be good for you, but I've redefined what a peak is in my heart. We never heard that. And you won't hear that. Why? Because it's foolish. It's foolish. If someone is trying to point you in the right way and you discount what they're saying, it's simply foolish. But here's the thing. Although it's foolish, it's exactly how we respond to God when he lovingly attempts to lead us in the right direction and get us on the right path. This is exactly what we're going to see in our text today. Verse 21 reads like this, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. So the Bible as a whole, and our text today in particular, begins with the focus placed on two characters, God and man. The first book of the Bible is Genesis, and Genesis begins with the words, in the beginning God created. 
God is the uncreated creator of everything seen and unseen, including you and I. This poetic narrative continues to detail how God uniquely and intimately sculpted man in his image and breathed life through his nostrils. Because God made man in his image, we share a lot in common with God. Scholars call these shared characteristics the the communicable attributes of God. Most communicable attributes relate to the moral competence of man. See, the list of these attributes is exhaustive, but what I want to do for our purpose is just teach you a few of the communicable attributes of God the way I taught my kids. And so if you're a parent, you'll be able to follow along. Here's a few of those attributes. Help me out. You may know these words. (laughs) And it goes a little something like this. Join in. The fruit of the spirit is not a coconut. The fruit of the spirit is not a coconut. You want to be a coconut? You might as well hear it. You can't be the fruit of the spirit because the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, some of you have been to Sunday school. All right. So the thing about these attributes is that God in his perfection fully embodies and enacts these attributes to its fullest. And he invites us, fallible creatures, to emulate him in part. So these communicable attributes God embodies and we get to emulate. So while there are many characteristics that God and man share in common, there are some characteristics that belong to God and him alone. These are called the incommunicable attributes of God. A few of these include holiness. Holiness. A definition of holiness is it's God's perfection of character that is without flaw and is endlessly good. God is holy. So we can try to become holier, but apart from divine intervention, we will never be pure, holy. God alone is holy. Another one of these characteristics is self-sufficiency. So self-sufficiency says that God needs nothing outside of himself to maintain his existence. God is self-sufficient. God doesn't need food. God doesn't need sleep. Some of you wish you were still in bed now. God doesn't need oxygen. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't even need our worship. God is fully self-sufficient in himself. And so this is something that may help you out this morning. God doesn't even need you, but God wants you. God needs nothing. So, These are some of the incommunicable attributes of God. But what I want to do is focus on three of them that many of us are familiar with, and these are called the omnis. These are the omni characters of God. And some of these include, the three are, God is omnipotent. God is omnipotent. You know what that means? God can do anything but sin. 
God and God alone. God is omnipresent, which means that God is everywhere at once. Try to wrap your brain around that. And then one of my favorites, God is omniscient, which means that God knows everything to be known. These are principles that are hard to wrap our minds around, but, and they belong to God and God alone. Now, with this knowledge, I have to ask this question. Do you feel the tension of our text? With the knowledge of knowing who God is and who we are, do you feel the tension with this text? Let me read 21 one more time. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all, and that all translates to all, all of his paths. So knowing what we know about God, this should be a comforting text. This should be. When referring to the eyes of the Lord, this is an anthropomorphism which is being used, which is when you attribute human traits, emotions, and intentions to a non-human entity. What the author is conveying to us, the reader, is God is good. He is all-powerful. He's the uncreated creator of all creation, and he takes time out of his day to see you. That should be comforting to us. Not only does he see you, but he also cares about what he sees. See, this word ponder in the Greek, it translates to palas. And what that means is to weigh, to balance, to make level, to make smooth. And so here's the picture. For numerous reasons, I don't know how to swim. I just just don't know how to swim. Don't be judging me. But I got a mean doggy paddle. I mean, it's fierce. I don't know how to swim. But this is the picture you should have. My family loves swimming. They went swimming yesterday. They love swimming. And when we go to our friend's house to swim, the ways of my kids are constantly before the eyes of daddy. They're constantly before the eyes of daddy. And if daddy sees a kid in danger, His non-swimming self will belly flop into the water to allow his lifeless body to be used as a flotation device for his children because he loves his children. That's the picture we should get in the text. God loves us so much that he is watching us with eyes of a loving father. That's the picture we should get and we should find comfort in. But unfortunately, I know something about you. I know something about you. You're a lot like me. That's scary, right? I know something about you. You're a lot like me. Although we should find comfort in this text, it can also feel a little intimidating, right? See, God sees you often feels more like God is watching you. Instead of comfort of a papa's gaze of loving concern, it can feel more like being trapped in in an Orwellian dystopic novel with Big Big Brother hovering, hovering above us like a drone. 
keeping an eye upon us, trying to figure out the best way to punish us. It feels like God is watching you. I guess I'm alone. Okay, I guess I'm alone. So let me try to break it down this way. Uh, my f- best friend growing up, his name was Will Smith. My best friend growing up, his name was Will Smith. We spent a lot of time together. And we got into normal adolescent trouble, just normal adolescent trouble, just doing stupid things. And one day we did something so egregious that his family punished him by doing something I had never seen before. They took the door off of his room. (laughs) I'd never seen this form of punishment. If you don't, if you can't already twit, uh, tell uh, Will Smith uh, didn't have very much melanin. I can you know this now because punishment in 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 my family never involves power tools. Like it just would never happen. They took the door off of his room because they wanted to keep an eye on him and see everything that we were doing as a form of punishment. That's how many of us feel when we hear this text. But this is what I want you to know. God doesn't have it out for you. He doesn't have it out for you. God is just for you. God doesn't have it in for you, just like Will Smith's family didn't have it in for us. They were just for us. They knew what was best for us. They saw we were making decisions that were off the right path and wanted to correct them. They were for us. But because their ways were not like our ways, we pushed against their direction. And so this is what we're going to see going forward. What God is going to lay before us is life has binary choices. Life has binary choices. We may not like it because we're people of unlimited options, but life is more black and white than gray in the kingdom. Life is more left or right than middle. Life is more hot or cold than lukewarm in the kingdom of God. And there is no room for nuance with these coming verses. God is going to show us that one way leads to only him and another way leads away from him. Verse 22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in cords of his sin. Now, before discussing these two paths, what I think is helpful is to break down the meaning of this word sin and answer the question, is sin and iniquity the same thing? Is sin and iniquity the same thing? And here's the, and here's the answer. They're not. Sin and iniquity are not the same thing. They actually have a distinction that is helpful for our purpose today. So let's begin with this definition of sin because I think it's more familiar for us. 1 John 3 verse 4 says this, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That's the definition. 
Uh, or as I used to teach the kids at camp, sin is anything you think, say, or do that breaks God's law. That's what sin is. The common illustration that's giving is one of an archer at a range shooting at a target and missing the target. Sin is missing the target. Whether you miss one-tenth of an inch or 10 miles, it is sin. That's what sin is. Now, alternatively, iniquity is a form of sin, yet it is distinct from sin. The Greek translation of iniquity is evon, and it's defined as a fault, mischief, guilt, or to, or to perverse something. An equation would look something like this. Iniquity equals sin. All iniquity is sin, but sin is greater than iniquity. Sin is greater than iniquity. Now, I don't know if this equation works out because I failed algebra, but you get the point. Um, if I was going to explain it, it'd be more like this. If sin is missing the mark, iniquity is the hangover you brought to the shooting range. If sin is missing the mark, iniquity is the hangover you brought to the shooting range. It's the things that lead to you missing the mark. See, iniquity are those things that you know you shouldn't do, but in your mind you're telling yourself, it ain't that bad. It's not that bad. I mean, I'm not really hurting anyone. As a matter of fact, I know people that are way worse than me. So my things aren't that bad. Yeah, I know I'm doing X, but I haven't done Y like Z. Therefore acceptable. That's iniquity. It's the things that lead up to the sin. So here's the problem with rationalizing our iniquity, rationalizing our sin. One little white lie turns into two. Three lingering stares. Ooh, look at her. Ooh, look at him. Three lingering stares turn into four. Five secret purchases, hello Amazon, turns into six. Seven mature audience streams, hello HBO, turns into eight. And nine too many rationalized iniquity turns into ten reasons you are now addicted to sin. So our verse says it this way. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the court of his sin. What this, verse is, what this verse is showing us in this pregnant imagery that it's giving us, it's meant to convey the stealth, the stickiness, and the subjugation of sin. The stealth, the stickiness, and the subjugation of sin. Rationalizing sin is like skipping through a forest riddled with hidden snares. After the first double hand noose latches to, your angle, latches to your ankle, you say, ha, joke's on you. I can still do this. Yeah. After the second snare latches to your other ankle, you say, at least I can still clap. After number three, you begin to say, 
this ain't that fun. But who wants a high five? Rationalizing sin, the insanity of it is that those who are ensnared actually begin to believe they're still free. As a matter of fact, when you're in your sin, you believe that in doing it, you're more free. That's the insanity of being ensnared to sin. Author John Green has it right when he pens these words in his novel, The Fault of Our Stars. Some tourists think Amsterdam is a city of sin, but in truth, it is a city of freedom. And in freedom, most people find sin. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten snares later, and we're left with verse 23. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. So, the only path sin leads down is death, both now and later. On this side of eternity, as we sin, our identity slowly dies and is replaced by either an ideal self we wish we were, or a shadow self we wish to hide. As we sin, our relationships slowly die as shame, fear, guilt, anxiety of being exposed pushes us deeper into isolation. As we sin, our affections slowly die as good things like food, drink, entertainment, possessions, and work become perverted objects of worship. What sin has you ensnared this morning? That's the question. Not do you have a sin that's ensnared you? What is it? What has you ensnared this morning? And I don't need to give a drop-down list of options because you already know which one it is, the one that you're susceptible to the one that you run to for comfort, that one that you hide behind so that others don't have to get to the true you. You know which one it is. And so the question is, are you taking it serious or are you rationalizing it? Are you taking it serious or are you rationalizing it? And I implore you, take it serious. Because on the other side of eternity, because we have sinned, Our God-like identity has been broken beyond human capacity to repair. Our relationship with God has been severed beyond our ability to bound. And And because of sin, our affections have been satisfied on earth. And so God declares to us, your will be done. Your will be done. You can have your sin forever. I'll stop watching. Enjoy your freedom. Those are scary words to hear from the mouth of the Lord. Let's stand. No, I'm just playing. Don't stand. If I concluded there, or if I gave four points on how to become more disciplined, we'd be a congregation of the disciplined walking dead. 
because we would still be dead in our sins. If I wrapped up by telling you the Hebrew word folly translates to stop being stupid, I'd be amused, but no one else would. And, and by the way, that is the sentiment of the author in that word folly. But it'd be unhelpful. Until this point, I've given an okay moralistic lecture, but it isn't a gospel sermon. Uh, when I told a friend I was coming to preach here, she gave me this advice that her seminary professor gave her. She said, the gospel never leaves Jesus on the cross. The gospel never leaves Jesus on the cross. And to this point, Jesus is still on the cross. So no shocker here. Acceptance by God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit is the second path. And it's the only path that leads to life both now and later. Jesus is the path. As a matter of fact, one day, Jesus' disciple Thomas asked him the following question. How can we know the way? How can we know the way? How can we know the path that leads to life? And John 14, 6, Jesus answers him. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, the Son of God, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, and rose the third day by the power of the Holy Spirit. But, like my favorite 3 a.m. infomercial announcer would say, but wait, there's more. Jesus played hopscotch with sin snares for you. On the cross, Jesus removed every sin that was placed upon you and he took those snares and he placed them on himself and he suffered the penalty of death so you would never have to taste it. The resurrection of Jesus proved that he was the holy, that he was the immutable, that he was the self-sufficient God-man that he claimed to be. Meaning, Jesus has the power and the authority to restore your identity, to restore your relationships, to renew your affections with both God and man, both now and forever. Jesus is the way. So in landing this plane, let me, ask this let me answer this final nagging question. Why do we keep choosing death? Why do we keep sinning? We know this about Jesus, but why do we keep putting ourselves in the snare? Jesus answered this for us in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' inaugural message about the countercultural kingdom of heaven which is coming to earth. Jesus concludes the sermon by teaching the crowd how to access the kingdom, and he uses four couplets to teach a point. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus warns the listeners to discern between false and true prophets, black, white, left, right. 
In verse 21, he details the difference between true disciples and workers of lawlessness. And in verse 24, he concludes with two different foundations we can build our lives upon, either sand or rock. These couplets are used by Jesus to reiterate a point. There are only two options in life that lead to the kingdom of God. And every day you make a decision, you're choosing a path. Choose wisely. Now, I skipped the first couplet on purpose because I believe it answers this question. Why do we continue to choose death? Matthew 7, 13 through 14, it says this, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. We choose the path of sin and death because it's easy and accessible. C.S. Lewis says this in The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Our ability to choose the path of life over death, holiday at sea over mud pies is determined by our ability, and here's the word, to repent. To repent. So this is how I'm not going to end. I'm not going to Tell us to come to the altar and repent your most recent sin. I'm not going to do that. That, That's a little bit too simplistic. What I want to end is by inviting us to repent for the original and ultimate sin of man that began with our parents, Adam and Eve, and continue to today. Listen, do not repent for being human. Repent for wanting to be God. Don't repent for being human. God knows you're human. He made you to be human, flawed and all. Repent for not wanting to be human and instead trying to be God. Don't repent for not being perfect. Repent for, try, for, be, for trying to be perfect on your own. Don't merely repent for sin. Repent for desiring to hide your sin. Don't merely repent for your iniquity that leads to deeper sin, but repent for replacing God and accepting your sin. And finally, repent for falling. Yes, repent for falling off the path, but also repent for redefining the destination. Jesus is the way. Let's stand together.
And let me remind us of something. These are the attributes of God, but this is also a little bit about you. God is omnipotent. God can do anything but sin. You and I are limited. Rest, breathe, trust God to be God for you. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere at once. You and I are finite. We can only be in one place. Rest, breathe, and trust God to be God for you. God is omniscient. He knows everything to be known. Our knowledge is limited. Rest, trust, ask God to be God for you. There's only two ways. Every day we choose to either stay on the path that leads to life that is abundantly found in God, or we choose to walk away from him where death awaits. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. Let us pray. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for being the way, the only way. And although the path in following you is marked with all types of obstacles, give us the courage to be steadfast seekers of you. Lord, I pray for anyone in here that is struggling to believe that you are good, that you're not watching them to punish them, but instead you see them, that you love them. Anyone who's struggling with that, will you comfort them today? And will you draw anyone who is far from you to you this morning? You are the way. You are the truth. We love you. We desire you. We want so much more of you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.